The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. Support your healthy CoQ10 levels and blood pressure with two chews a day. Visit RadioBeatsBeets.com and save 15% with promo code DEAL. I'm Jonathan Capehart, and this is Cape Up. Stephen Smith was already running an unconventional campaign for governor of West Virginia. It's a bona fide of the people effort under the banner West Virginia Can't Wait. The campaign, its policy proposals, and budget have been discussed and written by the people. In fact, Smith isn't even the focal point of his own race for governor. Even coronavirus hasn't upended the campaign. Smith says the pandemic has only enhanced their message. But will it work if Smith, who has to win the Democratic nomination in June, defeats the incumbent Republican in November? Smith thinks so. Hear him explain why right now. Stephen Smith, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Jonathan. I'm excited to be here. So I've been watching your campaign now for a while, since October when we met through our mutual friend Justin Guest. And he wanted me to meet you because he was saying, this guy, Stephen, he is running a different kind of campaign. And you laid it out to me at that dinner. Talk about the kind of campaign you are running. So our campaign starts with a simple but radical idea. We actually don't think that one governor is the answer to all of our problems. We actually believe that never in American history, certainly not in West Virginia history, has a politician been the answer. A politician didn't lead the mine wars 100 years ago or the teacher's strike two years ago, that what we need is change from the bottom up. So that's how we built our campaign. Starting uh, almost three years ago, we began having conversations with folks all across the state saying, what would it look like? What would it take to run a campaign where at the end of it, we didn't just win one office, but we won something closer to a people's government in West Virginia? And that's what we're doing. Now, a, a people's government, talk more about uh, how this campaign is working, because it, it's not just, hey, I'm Stephen Smith and I'm running for governor and you've got volunteers all around the state who are running around and getting people to vote for you. It's a little bit more involved than that. Right. They, in order to show people that we're doing something different, we have to do it with our actions, not just our words. So the first thing we did was build county volunteer teams in all 55 counties. We did a tour of the state. So in every county, there's a West Virginia can't wait volunteer team. It's not Jefferson County for Stephen Smith. It's Jefferson County can't wait. Then we realized that some people are going to come into politics based not from where they live, but from their identity, whether it's as a coal miner or a person of color, a Muslim or a student or a social worker. So we built 39 constituency teams veterans can't wait, seniors can't wait, and so on. The last piece of the puzzle was we knew we needed more than one candidate. And honestly, we thought, you know, if we could find 15 or 20 people to run the same kind of campaigns that we were running in the governor's race, that would be a miracle. So we looked for people who would say no to corporate PAC money, promise never to cross a picket line, promise never to hide from a debate, never to punch down. And again, we thought 15, 20, 25 people, that would be a revolution in West Virginia. Here we are 18 months later, there are 94 of us running together up and down the ballot. And importantly, we're running for all different kinds of offices from school board and city council 
to Congress and Senate and everything in between. We also represent the people of West Virginia in a way that is far different and far truer than the current government we have in place, that our 94 candidates are disproportionately black, disproportionately women, disproportionately veterans, disproportionately educators. 15 of us came directly from the teacher strike movement. We're disproportionately women, disproportionately members of the LGBTQ plus community. And together we represent something more like what our state is. And that's what we're after. Um, of these people, I mean, you're you're running um, in the Democratic Party. Are all of the people who are running in all of these positions, in all these elected, hopefully elected positions, are they also all Democrats? No. From the beginning of this campaign, we've known that strategically, but also morally, we have a duty to build a people's government, not just based on the people who only vote Democrat, which is a fairly small group of people in West Virginia. We had to be curious about inviting in independents and even people who voted for the president. And that doesn't mean compromising on our values. On the contrary, what it means is looking for the biggest, boldest issues that can bring people together. And that's what we found in this campaign, that on issue after issue, there was a Democratic position that you could find at the state capitol, a Republican position you could find in the state capitol, and then there was a big consensus a common sense position that wasn't being argued by the corporate arms of the Democratic or Republican Party. And that's where we find our strength. Uh, and that's why we've broken Joe Manchin's record for the most donations ever in a governor's race in West Virginia history, because we are appealing to uh, and literally accountable to a wide range of people from all different parts of the state and all different walks of life. So you mentioned you mentioned Joe Manchin, the the former governor, uh, current senator from West Virginia, but he's he's endorsed one of your one of your opponents. Why why don't you think he's looking to you as someone to throw his support behind? You'd have to ask him. Uh, <laughs> what we're doing is something that is required for any Democrat to win in West Virginia in twenty twenty. We've, you've got to energize the base. You have to bring new people in. And you have to be willing to and able to attract people who have given up on the political process. We're the only campaign that's doing it. And uh, whether or not we have the support of everyone in the party right now, obviously we don't. But what we're doing is essential for any Democrat who wants to win in West Virginia in 2020. And then if you look at our state, it's not really a red state or a blue state. It's an anti-establishment state. that. Trump beats Hillary in West Virginia, but Bernie beats Trump in West Virginia. And what we really want, the thing that really energizes our people, is the prospect of governing ourselves. That's why that educator strike movement started in West Virginia. People from all different parties, uh, different races coming together to demand a government that responded to us, not to one party or one politician, but to working people. Let me bring you back to the sort of the the politics of of the state um, from the from the the prism of national politics. We've seen over time the state West Virginia go from being reliably democratic or blue to over time becoming 
solidly red Republican. The president won West Virginia by a lot of votes. Um, Double digits by far. There's no way Hillary Clinton could have won West Virginia. Um, Why? What makes you think that your run, assuming you win the primary and you go on to the general election in a state that went so strongly for President Trump, why do you think you can prevail um, in the race against the sitting governor who's a Republican? Because what West Virginians want is to govern ourselves. Uh, We are not actually a reliably red state, nor were we a reliably blue state before. What we were is people who are tired of getting kicked in the teeth too often by corporate interests in both parties. That what we are offering is something fundamentally different. And uh, that's the fact that I've never run for office before, that we are the only campaign in the race that doesn't take corporate PAC money, the only campaign with a union staff, and the only campaign that built its policy platform from listening to the people of West Virginia. So the only campaign that embraces big, bold, populist ideas like full cannabis legalization, uh, broadband as a public utility, a Mountaineer Service Corps jobs program, a state bank, a freedom dividend, these kinds of ideas that bring people off of the sidelines. You know, West Virginia, the main problem electorally isn't the narrow margins between Democrats and Republicans. It's the fact that you have half of the electorate staying home because they haven't had real options from either party in a very long time. Well, you said in in a previous interview, you said that West Virginia didn't become more conservative. West Virginia became less establishment. That's exactly right. Uh, We hear it every day on the road and on the trail and from our uh, neighborhood captains. But it's, uh, it's true. The way we talk about it in West Virginia is that people will say, I don't vote the party, I vote the person. And what they're really saying is, I don't trust either party or either establishment. And in West Virginia, that's rational, that for 82 years, Democrats governed and life got worse. And then the Republicans took over for the last six years and life got worse because both parties too often have been accountable to out-of-state corporations, whether it was Uh, coal executives or pharmaceutical companies that flooded our state with opioids over and over and over again, we've been taken for a ride by our politicians selling out our work and our, uh, and our suffering to uh, out of state corporate interests. And that's where we see the biggest uh, ideas and the biggest support for our campaign is the fact that we're able to go after, we're able to fight these corporate interests and, Uh, this rampant corruption because we don't take their money to begin with. Now, you talked a couple of times now about policy proposals um, and, you know, sort of a people's government. Talk more fully about how you came about your policy plans. Um, You're running for governor, but you're not the one who's coming up with all the policy prescriptions for for what ails the state and the things that you would do as governor. Yeah, the the traditional way of running for office in West Virginia is to hire a couple political consultants, to poll test a few phrases that have no substance whatsoever, and then hide from the people, except for TV ads and things like that. Hide your proposals and policies and everything you possibly can, uh, that politicians try to hoodwink us. In order to show that we were doing something different and in order to win something different, we knew we wanted 
clear, bold plans and how we paid for them. So we spent an entire year building our platform from the ground up. That included 197 in-person town hall meetings. It included an additional 800 plus meetings that I was physically present for with unions and those constituency teams, small businesses, farmers, uh, you name it. And all the way, we were taking notes. People could give feedback online. Our county and constituency team would hold their own meetings and talk about local priorities. Then we stitched all of those things together. Uh, our writing team of our leaders came together, put together a draft proposal, 31 different policy plans, including some of the ones I've mentioned, an education plan, a bold plan to fight racism and discrimination, a plan to end mass incarceration, you name it. Then we sent those plans back out to our leaders. They held 47 platform parties uh, where they got to look at the draft and submit what ended up being another thousand plus comments and personal stories about what they wanted to see that we hadn't yet included. Then finally, those county and constituency captains came together and held an old fashioned delegates convention and they ratified that final plan. I actually didn't get a vote. None of the 94 of us got a final vote in the platform because we wanted it and frankly needed it to be something that directly responded to the people of the state so that as we travel the state for the last four or five months since ratifying this, no matter what issue people bring up, we have an answer. No matter when they say, how are you going to pay for it? We have an answer. And folks can see that what we're offering is something that will actually make people's lives better. And that is a radical idea in West Virginia. Politics has not made people's lives better in a very long time. So you've now talked about two legs of, of this three-legged stool, as I'd like to des describe it, that is your your campaign, the West Virginia Wake campaign. You've got the people who are running for office, yourself included, but folks down ballot. You've got um, basically a West Virginia Can't Wait platform, party platform that was put together, as you just described, by the people. And then the third leg of the stool is the budget that if you were to become governor of West Virginia, that as governor, you would put together a budget through the through the West Virginia can't wait. I'm looking for the right word to use. Is it movement? Is it party organization? organization? And so these, so all these people you've just been talking about, how they're going to come together and write the budget? We've already done it. People can go look at how we pay for all of these plans, where the money comes from, right now. We start with a base budget and then we show where we shift money or go get new revenue uh, to the tune of $2 billion. In West Virginia, you know, if you look at every inch of the tax code, it has been rigged. Rigged so that the people who have the most pay the least and the people who have the least pay the most. West Virginia actually isn't a poor state. We should be the richest state in the country. We've just been robbed. So as soon as we shift property taxes and corporate taxes and individual taxes and severance taxes, to even just be remotely fair, we can have a government that can fund broadband as a public utility, a massive investment in education, free college and uh, 
preschool and childcare and on and on and on. Now, does that mean just because we wrote it down on a plan, will it magically happen with the wave of a wand? Of course not. But that's why we build the political infrastructure and take two years to do so. One governor with that kind of agenda would get some of those things done. One governor plus dozens of new legislators plus a political infrastructure that is active in every single county has minors and veterans and seniors and students ready to rally for the plans that they wrote. Now we're cooking with grease, right? Now we can actually imagine a government that won't win on everything. No movement has ever been fully successful in realizing its goals. But the way we win is not to do what some Democrats have done for too long, which is to negotiate against ourselves, to pretend to be Republicans. The, the moments of greatest change in American history were always ones that led with boldness and uh, a bottom-up multiracial populism, not with a sort of uh, conservative desire to please our opponents. You mentioned miners. So let me ask you something about them and the coal industry, because, you know, the president runs around and says, we're bringing coal back. And anyone paying attention knows that that's just not that's just not possible. What do you what do you Well, actually, what do you hear from coal miners um, about their industry, their jobs and how they view the future? What we hear is that coal miners, it turns out, are really, really smart about the energy economy and about the future of that industry. That, uh, you know, there's this thing that happens in national politics. I'm sure you see it as much or more than I do, where West Virginia gets stereotyped as this uh, dumb, uh, foolish place that votes against its own interests. It turns out we're human beings just like everywhere else. We're tired of getting kicked just like everywhere else. And no one knows that better than coal miners. What coal miners did, though, 100 years ago in West Virginia, coal mining in West Virginia was a tougher job than arguably any other on the planet. If you were a coal miner in West Virginia in 1918, you were more likely to die on the job than a U.S. soldier serving overseas in World War I. You also weren't being paid in real money, right? It was this script that was being paid. Uh, and people organized and fought back and turned the worst job on planet Earth into a respectable middle-class, upper-middle-class upper living through union organizing. The first union organizer in the coal mines was an African-American. That During the mine wars, black, white, and immigrant miners came together to fight for their First Amendment rights to organize and for dignity on the job. I say all of this because there's a long history in West Virginia. We know that our fight isn't with coal miners uh, and that the real fight isn't coal versus anti-coal. The real fight is coal miners versus coal executives. And what coal miners in West Virginia want is what everyone wants. They want a future for their kid, kids. They want safe land and water. And they want a middle-class job, not just for the next three or four years, but for the next hundred. We launched our campaign in a UMWA local hall in Matewan, West Virginia. And our Miners' Bill of Rights, our environmental plan, our energy plan was written with direct impact, not from coal executives or coal operators, but from coal miners who want there to be middle-class energy jobs, including clean and green energy jobs, for the next 100 years. And 
if we make those same coal executives pay their fair share, their fines and fees and taxes that they're always dodging, we can have an energy economy that works for the next 100 years and beyond. So I'm just going to fast forward. And now and, and now you're governor. You've come. You, I like this question. <laughs> you, you get to the state capitol. You you um, you're governor. Um, you might have a few people who are part of the movement who are in the legislature with you. Um, you've got your policy proposals that are there for everyone to see and have been for a while. You've got the budget that you say is, is already there. But then you run into the entrenched interests in the state capital that is used. They're used to winning. The, the the fossil fuel industry, the, the coal executives you were just talking about, the pharmaceutical industry, the entrenched Democratic Party politicians, the entrenched Republican Party politicians who will probably be really mad that you beat their guy. How, how do you go up against such incredible forces? Wouldn't that be great? Right? Wouldn't it be great if we had a government and a movement that thought that its job was to go up against the people who are robbing from poor and working class people, that that's what we need is a fight. And we're tired of government that thinks that uh, their job is to play nice with the people who are hurting working class people and poor people and women and veterans and seniors. We think our job is to fight the people who are robbing us. Uh, So how do we do that? One is that we make executive the executive branch as participatory and as representative as possible we can control that without the legislature and for the 10 weeks of the transition that's what we'll do install taxpayer councils over every agency of government so the department of health and human resources the head of that agency the policy priorities of that agency would be decided by foster families and senior citizens and people with disabilities Uh, The Department of Environmental Protection would be led by surface owners and farmers and people who want safe land and water for their kids, and so on and so forth, so that uh, when we inaugurate the new government, it's not just one guy in a suit, it's hundreds of people taking leadership roles as taxpayers to hold the executive branch accountable 365 days a year and make sure it's representative. Another important piece of the puzzle uh, on day one is the creation of a corporate crime and political corruption division in the state police. We've talked to state police officers, and many of them are tired of the work that they're forced to do arresting people, caging people for being sick or for being poor. They signed up because they wanted to go after the real bad guys, the folks that are flooding our state with opioids, the people who are getting rich off of our terrible broadband monopolies, right? That's who they want to go after. And we can do that on day one so that we've got not just a carrot, but a stick to go after those people who have getting ri- been getting rich off of our people for a long time uh, with a massive corporate crime and political corruption division, the state police. That gives us leverage. The fact that the governor writes the budget that the legislature has to work with, that gives us leverage. The fact that the governor in West Virginia has a line item veto, it's not the strongest possible, but it's still there. That gives us leverage. And our job is to maximize that leverage, win as much as we can, and make them fight us on things like uh, 
a freedom dividend or an education plan that values teachers. Make them show their faces when we're trying to do right by the people of the state. Now, you're running um, a campaign where you are not the focal point. Yet, if you do become governor, you're governor. Um, so how what do you do um, if the movement that sent you to sent you to the capital to run the state, they want to do one thing, but you know as governor, it's not it's not the thing that need, that should be done, needs to be done, or could be done. What do you do then? Yeah, I, I think it's such a great question. It sort of gets to the heart of the matter. What I'm talking about isn't uh, a cool strategy to trick the political system. What I'm talking about are the values that I really hold, that the leadership of our campaign really holds. We really do believe that a collective, a movement, is smarter and wiser and more accountable than any one individual. So in a case where uh, I disagree with where our movement's at, I'm going to get outvoted. It's already happened. It happens all the time. Uh, we often joke in the campaign about the times when I get outvoted or where our campaign manager gets outvoted or where some of our candidates get outvoted. Even in that policy platform, I got outvoted a few times. That, uh, and how beautiful, right? That's, that's the world I want for my kid. That's the government I want for my kid. One where he doesn't grow up thinking that his job is to be the smartest guy who's smarter than everyone else and should take over and lead from above. I want him to grow up thinking that the highest thing he can aspire to is to be a part of something greater than himself, something that he is accountable to rather than something he puppeteers. Uh, so that answers your question. I would do what the people who brought me into office want, not the thing that I want in that moment. Pre-coronavirus, you were already running a campaign that, um, as you've been talking about, wildly untraditional. Um, <laughs> I that's the nicest thing someone could say. <laughs> right. Wildly untraditional. And yet it seems to me that post-coronavirus, your campaign is perfectly situated to respond to a pandemic that caught a lot of people by surprise. How did you how did you change your campaign to respond to a pandemic that made everyone stay at home? This is a perfect illustration of the thing we were just talking about. I didn't do anything. In fact, it was a really tough moment for me as it was for a lot of people. Uh, I have an eight-year-old. My wife and I have an eight-year-old. Uh, we were trying to figure out in that moment, how are we going to school our kid from home? Uh, I was trying to get used to the difference from being on the road for 18 months straight to being cooped up in my house. Uh, that the people who really stepped forward in that moment as we tried to reimagine our campaign were our brilliant, all-women, unionized staff, our campaign manager, Katie Lauer, our county and constituency captains. They rose to that challenge and provided the leadership our movement needed in that critical moment. And when we all got together, here's what we came up with. First and foremost, all of our people were unanimous. We said, all right, this is a new reality. We now have two responsibilities, not just one. Our first responsibility is still 
to do everything we can to win a people's government. That's more important than ever. We have to win these elections. But also, we now have an equal responsibility to do everything we can to reduce the suffering of our neighbors and friends and family, especially as we see our own government lacking leadership. What did that look like? We put forward our own coronavirus resource website, updated daily, uh, and it was up before the state of West Virginia had theirs. We got that policy committee back together and built a coronavirus response plan that in some cases the governor has stolen from, as we hoped he would, but in most cases, uh, you know, continues to be the leading edge of policy in the state during this time. We put together how-tos and uh, videos for folks trying to figure out how to navigate the moment. I go live from my basement uh, every night not to yell at the screen uh, like uh, some politicians do, but instead to interview frontline workers and nurses and essential workers and faith leaders and small business owners to get a real perspective of what's going on on the ground. And then most important, and the thing that's gotten a little bit of national attention, uh, which is the most beautiful thing I've ever been a part of in, in my career, is our neighborhood captain program. That uh, over the course of the last two months, we've recruited, trained, supplied, uh, built an entire program from scratch of 377 neighborhood captains, West Virginians, who are checking in on their neighbors on a weekly basis, 37,000 of their neighbors on a weekly basis, making sure they have food, medicine, unemployment benefits, information, uh, knowledge about how to get their absentee ballots. It's a genuine coronavirus response team that also serves as a GOTV operation in the margins. And in addition to those 37,000, our teams have gone above and beyond and reached another 148,000 voters with at least one contact, uh, a handwritten postcard, a phone call, a text message, neighbor to neighbor, one-on-one. And at the end of this, like everything we've done, when you're out to build long-term power, whether I get more votes than my opponent in the primary or the general, what we're building can't be taken away. Right? That, that's the thing that helps me sleep at night, is that even if I don't win my primary or my general, um, the worst case scenario is we helped people get resources in the pandemic. We built a statewide political infrastructure. We've turned more voters out than we've seen in a long time. And, you know, worst case scenario, at least 20 or 30 of the 94 of us are going to be in office. That's the value. That's why I believe movements are so much more reliable than individual politicians. Stephen Smith, candidate for governor of the great state of West Virginia. Thank you very much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I hope anyone who's listening will get in touch with us directly. We love trading ideas and learning from this. It's easy to find my cell and email online. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.